0: Part 1, Chapter 1 of The Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume 1. This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org Recording by Marianne Spiegel. The Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume 1 by Edward Tyus Cook. Part 1: one. Aspiration: 1820 to1854. I go to prove my soul, I see my way as birds their trackless way, I shall arrive, what time, what circuit first, I ask not, but unless God send his hail or blinding fireballs, sleet or stifling snow, in some time, his good time, I shall arrive. He guides me and the bird, in his good time. Browning, Per Chapter One, Childhood and Education, 1820 to 1839, Part One. One. I found her in her chamber reading, Phaedon Platonus in Greek, and that with as much pleasure as some gentlemen would read a merry tale in Boccace. Roger askham To the tender sentiment and popular adoration that gathered around the subject of this memoir, something, perhaps, was added by the beauty of a name which linked together the city of the flowers and the music of the birds. Her surname suggested to Longfellow the title of the poem which has carried home to the hearts of thousands in two continents the lesson of her life. The popularity of Florence, in the Middle Ages a masculine name, as a Christian name for English girls, is noted by the historian of that subject as due to association with the heroine of the Crimea. Both of her names were the result of circumstance. Her father came from the old Derbyshire family of Shore of Tepton, and changed his name in 1815 from William Edward Shore to William Edward Nightingale on succeeding to the property of his mother's uncle, Peter Nightingale of Lee, in the same county. Mr. William Nightingale was fond of travel, and the close of the French War, shortly before his marriage, 1818, had thrown the continent open to the Grand Tour. Mr. and Mrs. Nightingale's only children, two daughters, were born during a sojourn in Italy. The elder was born at Naples in 1819, and was named, firstly, Frances, after her mother, and, secondly, after the old Greek settlement on the site of her birthplace, Parthenope, She afterwards became the second wife of Sir Harry Verney. The younger daughter, the subject of this memoir, was also named after her birthplace. She was born at Florence on May 12, 1820, in the Villa Columbia, near the Porta Romana, as a memorial tablet now affixed to the house records. And there, on the 4th of July, she was baptized by Dr. Trevor, prebendary of Chester. The place names became, in familiar intercourse, Partha, or Pop, and Flow. The surprises of sainthood, said a speaker at a congress on eugenics, are no less remarkable than those of genius. St. Francis of Assisi, St. Catherine of Siena, and Florence Nightingale could no more have been predicted from their ancestry than Napoleon, Beethoven, Michelangelo, or Shakespeare. But the peculiarities of tissue on which some physical characteristics are held to depend can, at any rate, be inherited. Florence Nightingale's mother was one of the eleven children of William Smith of Parndon Hall, Essex, of whom Sir James Stephen said, when he had nearly completed fourscore years, he could still gratefully acknowledge that he had no remembrance of any bodily pain or illness, and that of the very numerous family of which he was the head. Every member still lived to support and gladden his old age. This statement is not absolutely correct, for one child did not long survive its birth, but of the other sons and daughters of William Smith, none died at an earlier age than sixty-nine. Two lived to be more than seventy-five, six to be more than eighty, and one to be more than ninety. This last was Frances, Mrs. Nightingale, who lived to be ninety-two. On the father's side, there was longevity also. Mr. Nightingale himself lived to be eighty. His mother lived to be ninety-five. He had an aunt who lived to be ninety, and, your uncle, wrote his father, young at eighty-two, enters into politics of the present moment with the ardor of twenty-two. Of the children of Mr. and Mrs. William Nightingale, Parthenope lived to be seventy-five, and Florence, though, or, in part, perhaps because, she lived for fifty three years the life of an invalid, attained the age of ninety. Florence Nightingale, whether saint or not, was certainly conscious of a call, but there was nothing in her descent or inheritance which encouraged her parents to allow it to become readily effectual. Because she was a woman, her early life was one long struggle for liberation from circumstance and social prepossessions. Yet there were features in her mental equipment and intellectual outlook which may well have been inherited and which certainly owed much to environment. Sir James Stephen adds to the remarks quoted above that if William Smith had gone mourning all his days, he could scarcely have acquired a more tender pity for the miserable, or have labored more habitually for their relief. In politics he was a follower of Fox. He was a friend of Wilberforce, with whom he cooperated in the House of Commons, in the abolitionist and other humanitarian movements. Of Wilberforce, as of Thomas Clarkson, he possessed the almost brotherly love, and of all their fellow laborers there was none who was more devoted to their cause, or whom they more entirely trusted. In religion a Unitarian, he was a stout defender of liberty of thought and conscience, a persistent opponent of religious tests and disabilities. The liberal opinions, alike in church and state, which were thus traditional in the family of Florence Nightingale's mother, were shared by that of her father. Her grandfather Shore, in a letter to his son in 1818, referred to one of the finest pieces of eloquence, either in ancient or modern times, given by Sir Samuel Romilly in the Court of Chancery on a motion respecting the right of Jews to the benefit of a charity in Bedford. It does honor to the man and to human nature. Florence Nightingale's father was also a Unitarian, and in politics he was a Whig. How I hate Tories, he wrote to his wife, and in another letter, after the election of 1835, in which the hated ones had gained ground, he explained that they were mighty only by beer, brandy, and money. The Whigs, as is well known, were not at all lacking in the latter equipment for political success, and Mr. Nightingale was a frequent subscriber to electoral funds on the Whig side. He was an ardent supporter of parliamentary reform. He held that Bentham has taught great moral truth more effectually than all the Christian divines. At a later time, he was a follower of Lord Palmerston, of whom he was also a neighbor in the country. One of the earliest notices which I find of Florence Nightingale's interest in politics is in a letter from her father describing a meeting at Romsey to which he had taken her. Florence, he says, approved very much Palmerston's exposition of his foreign policy. Something else Florence Nightingale owed to, or shared with, her father. He, like some other members of his family, was of a reflective temperament, interested in speculative problems. There is a letter written by him to his wife from his father's sick room, September 1822, which shows the bent of his thoughts. I sit by his bedside and look at him as one would at a sleeping man, the idea of death only now and then flashing across my mind. I have been studying Madame de Stael on the feeling of conviction, which exists more or less in different people and different nations, on the subject of soul as independent of external ideas. My imagination is a dull one, for certainly it required study with me to feel the full force of conviction that soul does and must exist quite separately from, though influenced by, external circumstances. You will say, I know, With a firm belief in Scripture and religion, leave all philosophical speculation to the wild imaginations of the Germans. Nothing can change your reliance on religion. The perversity of my nature refers me to experience and analogies, though I begin to think that the study of the creation displayed before our faculties will exalt me into a conception of divinity completely pervading the whole. But particularly that part of man which enables him to feel the difference between right and wrong independently of the ideas which he derives from external circumstances. Florence Nightingale's mother accepted the religious standpoint of the day without question. Unitarianism was dropped by her and by her elder daughter. By Florence, it was, as we shall hear, transcended. The mother's essential bent was practical, though the scope of it was somewhat limited. The mind of her daughter Florence found room in equal measure for practice and for contemplation. She inherited her mother's organizing capacity, though she turned it to directions of her own. It was from her father that she inherited the taste for speculative inquiry, which absorbed a large part of her life. 2. From the worldly circumstances of her parents, Florence came to draw conclusions little sympathetic in some respects with existing usages and conventions. She accepted, indeed, the position of worldly wealth into which she was born without any fundamental questioning. In later years, a young friend, on being urged to visit the villagers around one of Mrs. Nightingale's country homes, explained that she did not like the relation. She could not bring herself to go from a big, comfortable house to instruct poor people on how to live. Miss Nightingale laughed and said, "You surely don't call Lee Hurst a big house." It had only about fifteen bedrooms. She took for granted the position into which she was born, but she thought that wealth should only be used as a means of work. The easy, comfortable, not very strenuous conditions of her home life as a girl fixed the nature of her early years, but her soul did not become rooted in them. They sowed seeds which grew, as the years passed, not into acquiescence, but into revolt. Mr. Nightingale had inherited his great-uncle's property when nine years old. It accumulated for him— and a lead-mine added greatly to its value. By the time of his marriage he was blessed, or as his younger daughter came to think, afflicted, by the possession of a considerable fortune. Whether it were indeed a blessing or an affliction, it involved him in much uncertainty of mind. He and his wife returned from the continent with their infant daughters in 1821, and the question became urgent, where to live? The landed property which he had inherited from his great uncle was a comparatively small estate at and around Lee Hill in Derbyshire. To this property he added largely. The hall, the old residence of his great uncle, was discarded, it is now used as a farmhouse, and Mr. Nightingale built a new house called Lee Hurst. The charm of its situation and prospect is described in a letter by Mrs. Gaskell. High as Leehurst is, one seems on a pinnacle with the clouds careening round one. Down below is a garden with stone terraces and flights of steps, the plains of these terraces being perfectly gorgeous with masses of hollyhocks, dahlias, nasturtiums, geraniums, etc. Then a sloping meadow losing itself into a steep wooded descent, such tints over the wood, to the river Derwent, the rocks on the other side of which form the first distance, and are of a red color streaked with misty purple. Beyond this interlacing hills forming three ranges of distance, the first deep brown with decaying heather, the next in some purple shadow, and the last catching some pale watery sunlight. "'I am left alone,' continued Mrs. Gaskell, established high up, in two rooms, opening one out of the other, the old nurseries. The inner one, in which Mrs. Gaskell slept, was, when Parthenope grew up, her bedroom. It is curious how simple it is. The old carpet doesn't cover the floor. No easy chair, no sofa, a little curtainless bed, a small glass. In the outer room, the former day nursery, Miss Florence's room, when she is at home, everything is equally simple. Now, of course, the bed is reconverted into a sofa, two small tables, a few bookshelves, a drab carpet only partially covering the clean boards, and stone-colored walls, as cold in coloring as need be, but with one low window on one side, trellised over with Virginian creeper as gorgeous as can be, and the opposite one by which I am writing, looking over such a country. The sound of the derwent was often in Florence's ears. When she was in the hospital at Scutari, any fretting in the straits recalled it to her. "'How I like,' she said on a stormy night, to hear that ceaseless roar. It puts me in mind of the dear Derwent, how often I have listened to it from the nursery window. Leehurst Hurst became one of Florence Nightingale's earliest homes in England, but it was not the earliest of all. The house was not built when the family returned from the continent, and Mr. Nightingale took Kinsham Court at Prestine in Hertfordshire. The place, it seems, was more picturesque than habitable and negotiations for the purchase of it, with a view to improvements, fell through. Mr. Nightingale liked Derbyshire, and was fond of his new house. But the rich, as well as the poor, have their perplexities. The difficulty is, wrote Mr. Nightingale to his wife, where is the country that is habitable for twelve successive months? And, again, how would you like Leicester? For my part, I think that, provided I could get about two thousand acres and a house in some neighboring county where sporting and scenery were in tolerable abundance, and the visit to Lee Hurst were annually confined to July, August, September, and October, then all would be well. While Mrs. Nightingale stayed at Kinsham, or took the children for a change of air to the seaside or Tunbridge Wells, Mr. Nightingale divided his time between the management of his property in Derbyshire and the search for a second home elsewhere. Ultimately, he found what he wanted at Embley Park in the parish of Wellow, near Romsey. This estate was bought in 1825, and Kinsham was given up. Embly is on the edge of the new forest, and the rich growth of its woods and gardens is much favored by sun and moisture. Old oaks and beeches, thickets of flowering laurel and rhododendron, and a profusion of flowers and scents contrast with the bare, breezy hills of Derbyshire. Its new owners had here the variety they wished for, and a full scope for their taste. The most praised of its beauties is a long road almost shut in by masses of rhododendron. One of the occasional pleasures of Miss Nightingale's later life in London was a drive in the park, in rhododendron time, to remind her of Embly. 3. From her fifth year onwards, Florence Nightingale had, then, for her homes, Lee Hurst in the summer months, and Embley during the rest of the year. The family usually spent a portion of the season in London. The sisters led, it will be thus seen, a life mainly in the country, and Florence as a child became fond of flowers, birds, and beasts. A neatly printed manuscript book is preserved in which she made a catalogue of her collection of flowers, describing each with analytical accuracy and noting the particular spot at which it was picked her childish letters contain many references to animal companions. She made particular friends with the nuthatch. She had a pet pig, a pet donkey, a pet pony. She was fond of riding and fond of dogs. A small pet animal, she said many years afterwards, is often an excellent companion for the sick, for long chronic cases especially. The more I see of men, wrote a cynic, the more I love dogs. Florence Nightingale, in the same piece from which I have just quoted, drew a like moral from her experience of some nurses. An invalid, she said, in giving an account of his nursing by a nurse and a dog, infinitely preferred that of the dog. Above all, he said, it did not talk. There were no babies in the Nightingale family after the arrival of Florence herself, but most of her mother's many brothers and sisters married and had families, and as Mr. and Mrs. Nightingale's houses— were often visited by these relations, there was seldom wanting a succession of babies, and in them and their christenings and teethings and illnesses and lessons, Florence took that interest, which is often strong in little girls. Sometimes a baby died, and her letters showed that Florence was as much interested in a death as in a birth. She rejoiced in The Little Angels in Heaven. One of her favorite poems at this period was The Better Land, of Mrs. Hemans, which she copied out for a cousin as So Very Beautiful. The earliest letter which I have seen, written when she was ten, strikes mingled notes. She is staying with Uncle Octavius Smith at Thames Bank, a house which then adjoined his distillery at Millbank, and writes to her sister, who is on a visit with the maid to another set of cousins. "'Give my love to Clements, and tell her, if you please, that I am not in the room where she established me, but in a very small one,' instead of the beautiful view of the Thames, a most dismal one of the black distillery, and whenever I open my window, the nasty smell rushes in like a torrent. But I like it pretty well, notwithstanding. There is a hole through the wall close to my door, which communicates with the bathroom, which is the next room where Freddy sleeps, and he talks to me by there. Tell her also, if you please, that I have washed myself all over and feet in warm water since I came every night, I went up to the distillery to the very tip-top by ladders with Uncle Ock and Fred Saturday night. We walked along a great pipe. We have had a good deal of boating, which I like very much. We see three steamboats pass by every day, the Diana, the Fly, and the Endeavor. My love to all of them except Miss W. Give my love particularly to Hillary. Your affect and only sister. Dear Pop, I think of you. Let us love one another more than we have done. Mama wishes it particularly. It is the will of God, and it will comfort us in our trials through life. Goodbye. Was Miss W. an unsympathetic governess? Whoever she was, the exception in her disfavor shows an unregenerate impulse which contrasts naively with the following good resolve towards her sister. To a year earlier belongs a little notebook entitled, Journey of Flow, Embley. It begins with the reminder, The Lord is with thee wherever thou art. And then an entry records, Sunday, I obliged to sit still by Miss Christie till I had the spirit of obedience. As a child, and throughout all the earlier part of her life, Florence was much given to dreaming, and in some introspective speculations written in 1851, she recalled the pleasures of naughtiness. When I was a child and was naughty, it always put an end to my dreaming for the time. I never could tell why. Was it because naughtiness was a more interesting state than the little motives which make man's peaceful, civilized state an occupied imagination for the time? To Miss Christie, her first governess, Florence became greatly attached, and the death of the lady a few years later threw her into deep grief. She was a sensitive and somewhat morbid child, and though she presently developed a lively sense of humor, to which she had the capacity of giving trenchant expression, It was the humor of intellect rather than the outcome of a joyous disposition. Her early letters contain little note of childish fun. They are for the most part grave and introspective. She was self-absorbed and had the shyness which attends upon that habit. My greatest ambition, she wrote in some private reminiscences of her early life, was not to be remarked. I was always in mortal fear of doing something unlike other people, and I said, If I were sure that nobody would remark me, I should be quite happy. I had a morbid terror of not using my knives and forks like other people when I should come out. I was afraid of speaking to children because I was sure I should not please them. Meanwhile, she was perhaps at times, even as a child, a little difficult at home. Ask Flo, wrote her father to his wife in 1832, if she has lost her intellect. If not, why does she grumble at troubles which she cannot remedy by grumbling?' End of chapter 1, part 1